0: And the book of Psalms is just a large collection of poetry, 150 different uh, poems or songs written. And there's all sorts of context and uses and um, language and themes. Sometimes the songs are traveling songs that people would sing while heading up to Jerusalem or heading back from Jerusalem. Sometimes the songs seem to be liturgy that would have been used within the temple and then the temple practices amongst the priests. Sometimes poems, even for sort of personal devotion, to, to be read um, as you pray or as you ponder the things of God. There's all sorts of topics. Sometimes it's lamenting and being really sad over the state of the world or over the state of personal life. Sometimes it's, it's a lot of adoration and praise. There's just all different themes and topics all covered. It's almost like a bit of a, a tool belt for prayer, a tool belt for singing, uh, with all these different tools to help us um, Learn how to approach God, pray to God, interact with God. And the book's divided into big um, five sections of sort of five books. There's constantly these refrains uh, at the end of each book. So there's these five. Uh, whoever put the collection together broke it down into five books. And at times, if you're reading through, it will feel kind of haphazard how the different psalms sort of get put together. But we will see certainly today that that's not as haphazard as we would imagine. Uh, that uh, these, these authors uh, arrange the books in certain ways at certain times for certain reasons, uh, and that sometimes those are really, really important. After a sort of intro, we end up exploring, at least for the first two books, the complicated history of David and the royal family. The third section focuses on the tragedy of the Israelites' exile uh, and the downfall of the royal line. And the fourth and fifth sections kind of rekindle Uh, a hope for a king, a future king, a new temple, God's kingdom on the other side of exile. And they kind of end with a little five-part conclusion, praising God and his faithfulness. And there's a whole lot of reasons why everything happens in fives uh, throughout this book. And it happens a ton, a ton of times. Um, Because even at the very beginning, Psalm one, which was not the, the focus of today, but Psalm one opens with, "Blessed is the one who meditates on the Torah, who meditates on God's law." The blessed life is the one who takes this word and and haggaz it is, is is thinking about, it, is chewing on it, is is murmuring over it, almost in the Hebrew. And that there's a blessed life to come from spending time into God's word, and so um, that that for up to, to, to this point in time was primarily the Torah. And so um, the idea that we would put everything in groups of five is pretty reflective of that idea. So the book does start with these two psalms. They're sort of an intro. To kind of talk about blessed is one who meditates on the word. They're like a, a tree planted by streams, by waters, that is fruitful because of that. And then it's sort of like, okay, well, who is this blessed person? And, and, and can I be that blessed person? And then immediately the psalmist in Psalm 2 moves to this king language. To talk about this promised king, this one who's going to come. And, and that's what we're sort of left with in the opening two psalms. But today we're going to look at Psalm 8. We're going to jump ahead a few psalms. Though we're about to talk about Psalm 3 through 14 as part of it. But Psalm 8 will be where we're at. If you want to turn there please do. There's a lot of nuance to these texts. Uh, I'm going to read through it. Um, Our English versions, uh, because Hebrew poetry can be very repetitive, can um, be uh, uh, language works a certain way when it's poetic and and, and, um, it's meant to symbolize a lot of different things. Uh, I'll read but at times I'll probably rephrase a few things just because it's helpful. Uh, The English translators don't like to be repetitive because it's clunky to read that way, but the Hebrew writers love to be repetitive. And so um, I'll just read through it as we go. Sorry, verse one. O Lord, which whenever you see four capitalized lords is Yahweh, it's the, the sort of personal name to God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth or land is also the word there. You have set your glory or your splendor above the heavens, which is also the sky. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength, or or really in the language a stronghold, a fortress, because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens or skies, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man or, or human, is really just in the text, that you are mindful of him or the son of man or humanity once again, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor, which is majesty once again. You have given him dominion dominion. over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth so reading through that, you will notice right away that there's a repeated phrase at the front and the back. It starts with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. And O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's called an inclusio. It's meant to draw our eyes in that direction in terms of themes or focus. And it says, in all the earth or land, and all the heavens are skies. And We open with concepts right from the beginning around heaven and earth. And all of God's creation and we get language around overseeing the animals and stuff like that so what what should our uh, what should our mind be drawn to if we know our scripture as well yeah creation right there's a lot of language in the psalm that should be making us think through creation and God created it and the heavens and the earth uh, um, represent or show his name his reputation it's as if God's Painting is there and it's like seeing a beautiful work of art. You would say, "Like, wow, that must be a wonderful artist and that's what the psalmist is trying to to do. Look at all of creation because we should be in awe of its creator. And we get very specific words, words we don't use in English very often, like majestic. When's the last time someone used the word majestic, right? Unless you said, I saw Jim Carrey in the movie The Majestic, um, we wouldn't say the word majestic very often. We sing it in like, uh, America the Beautiful, right? The Purple Mountain's majesty. Uh, but it's just not a word unless uh, you are in, in like England, because uh, we would say your majesty or something like that. It's just not a word we, we tend to use. It's not. Um, a common word to us, but but at its heart, it, it actually gets used around a lot of non people things uh, in Scripture. It's really just this idea of powerful and huge and impressive. It's used to describe trees. It gets used to describe storms. It's used to describe these things that they are um, so impressive, you're kind of awestruck. And then the word s- splendor. Uh, the word glory is translated in ESV. Um, it's never translated again throughout the whole SV as the word glory. They just chose this one time here to do it that way. There's another word for glory, kavod. Um, but it's really the idea of splendor, this radiance, this brilliance in the text. Something that uh, stands out as eye-catching. But both these words, as much as they're used for n- nouns, are tending to use with a, a very regal, a very kingly idea. There's, there's this meant to be, um, there's, there's something sort of like a king about God in the ways that he rules. As we reflect on God as a creator, that there's this context. And then verse 2 comes along. It says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength or a stronghold because of your foes to still the enemy and the adventure. Now, I know we use the phrase often, the out of the mouth of babes, comes, and, and there's all sorts of ways that gets used. But just reading this sentence in context, it is a strange, strange sentence, right? Like if you were just reading Psalms alone, you, suddenly the psalmist goes, hey, out of the mouth of babies, there's going to be a stronghold, a fortress. So to be clear, God is going to build a fortress out of baby babble, Right? That's, that's essentially what he's saying. It makes sense. Against the foes and the enemies and the avengers in the story, babies are going to help us. And this line gets even more peculiar because it's one of the lines from the Psalms that actually gets picked up in the New Testament. Uh, this Psalm gets quoted uh, multiple times, a few times by Paul, the writer of Hebrews, and by Jesus himself in the New Testament. Now, we've covered this a little bit when we're walking through Matthew. When someone quotes something in the New Testament, instead of copying and pasting all the context, because writing on scrolls is extremely expensive, uh, they would include a line, and often it would be meant to include the context. Almost every time that happens, the the context is actually at play, and we we saw that a little bit walking through Matthew, and we'll see that certainly more as we continue. So in Matthew twenty-one. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem for his final week. And what is Jesus riding on? Right? Okay. The anointed king who is going to put all nations under subject to him doesn't come riding in on a war horse. He doesn't come riding him with a sword in his hand. He comes riding in on a donkey. And who all standing around waving their, their palm branches and stuff? Like the military might of Israel? No, like a bunch of peasants, a bunch of regular Joe Schmoes and, and women and children and the afflicted. you find people that are, 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 are wanting healing and all these other things. That's, that's the picture that we have in this wonderful, and we, and we preached on this a couple years ago, this wonderful picture of Jesus riding into town. And he goes to the temple and he starts flipping tables and clearing the temple and making everybody upset at him. And he starts healing all the people that need healing. And people start breaking out in song, children start singing and they start singing things like, Hosanna to the son of David. They're saying, save us, Lord, please, the son of David, which is implied the Messiah. And eventually the scribes, some of the the law leaders in this moment, they say to him, this is uh, 21 verse 16, do you hear what these are saying? Referring to the kids, the children. These scribes are taking offense Hey, these kids are running around thinking that you're going to help them and be this kind of king. This is silly. Jesus, do you hear this? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? To the scribes whose job is to read for a living, he goes, do you, have you never read out of the mouth of babes or infants and nursing babies, you have prepared prayers? Now, is it Jesus just reaching into the grab bag of the Old Testament for one verse that just happens to relate to babes that were crying out? And also, did you notice that there's wording that's a little bit different? If you have Psalm 8 in front of you. Let me briefly address the wording. So, sometimes these psalms are super um, poetic and wonderful. Today's going to be a little bit technical. um, Which, leave it to Chris to make a psalm technical. But I think it's extremely... uh, fascinating what's actually going on in the psalm. And so, um, at some point, you had the Old Testament in Hebrew, and eventually some people come along before Jesus' time and say, hey, uh, there's a lot of Jews in the Greek world, we need to translate it into Greek because some of them aren't learning Hebrew very well, and so they translate it into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. Now when every translator comes along, and this happens in English all the time, you get to weird phrases and you're like, it doesn't make total sense, how do we word that differently? And the Septuagint, they did that. It came to out of the mouth of babes. So they get to this weird line where they're like, hey, out of babies is going to come the fortress of God. And they're like, that doesn't make total sense. So let's rephrase it. And out of the mouth of babes comes praise. God's, God's going to build praise. And that makes sense. That's what comes out of mouths. Uh, and, and God could build his fortress in praise. Maybe that's a stronghold of some sort, but that's what they do in the Septuagint. Now, at some point, you have this online, and, and they decide to change it. Now, we don't know specifically whether Jesus spoke Greek or not. Um, it, it probably, especially up in the Galilee, but maybe more in Jerusalem, probably wasn't the most common language. It was a little bit of language commerce, but Aramaic, um, or at least in religious settings, Hebrew would have been probably a little more common. So it's not, it's uncertain whether Jesus said this exactly from the Septuagint. Or whether Matthew, as he's writing, perhaps in Greek, quotes the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew version, though Matthew goes back and forth throughout his book doing that. Or maybe later scribes who know the Septuagint well made some changes and put that word in there. We're not sure. Now, this is the stuff that used to drive me crazy. It'd be like, that's not fair. We can't have that happen. All that kind of stuff. I'm not in that camp anymore. I think it often actually adds to the depth of the text to to dive into some of these little nuances around language, around translations. Um, And and so um, I at least wanted to address that. So you're like, why did Jesus wrongly quote the Old Testament? Um, Because I don't think he wrongly quoted the Old Testament. I think he's playing with, and there was a lot more interchangeability of words um, in their time that we don't do because we use words like inerrant and that's not fair, but uh, but in their time, there was such a fluidity to quoting Septuagint, to rewording things, that I think it's, it's what's happening in this text. Now, let's take another step back. It's like a dream within a dream in Inception. Let's take another step back and look at the location of Psalm 8 in the book. So as I said, there's five books in the book of Psalms, um, and the first book is 1 through 41. That's, that's the collection of the first book of the book of Psalms. Now guess what? That's divided into five sections as well. So the five books and the first book is divided into five. So think about it this way. So like Harry Potter, let's pretend there's five movies in in, in, the, in the book of songs, these five movies. And then in movie one, there's five main scenes that happen in the first movie. So it's probably the best way to think about how to break down a book like like a book of Psalms. And so um, we get sort of these five sections and it actually makes this wonderful chiasm, which in the Jewish world is a way that the beginning and the end reflect each other, then the next line and the second and the last line reflect each other and it kind of gets to a focus point in the middle. And so we get the first and second Psalms, which are about sort of blessed life and taking refuge in the Messiah. And then Psalms three through seven become sort of five laments uh, by David. And eight stuck in the middle is a song of praise and then nine through 13 become uh, five more laments uh, but instead of just David it's the people itself and then it kind of ends in this conversation around wisdom and folly and so um, there's even sort of I would argue wisdom language to Psalms one and two and eight becomes sort of this center point of this whole text And Psalm 2 introduces us to this king, this king that's going to come, that there's going to be this Messianic king that that people desperately need. A king from David's line who will rule over all the hostile nations that are to come. And then Psalm 3 happens, and it's oh, and we have a king, and he's on the run because his children are trying to kill him. And he's desperate. He doesn't know what to do, and he's wandering around the desert, and he's hopeless, and he has no hope, and and he is crying out to God for deliverance, for restoration. And then soon after that, by verses or chapters 9 through 14, we reflect on the poor and afflicted ones, the people who are crying out that, that, that God would confront these empires and vindicate his people. So it's not just David who's afflicted, but also the people are afflicted by nations and kings and evildoers and enemies. And so we have this wonderful breakdown of these sections. And so putting this concept together, it opens saying there's a way of blessing by meditating on God's word, by seeking his wisdom, not the the confusing wisdom of evildoers and all that, but but by looking at God's words, God's teachings. And, and, And in that, there's also still this promised king to come who's coming to take care of the oppressive powers of this world. And at the end of Psalm 2, we almost expect the rest of the book to be like, and here's how he's going to do it. He's going to bring a sword in his hand. He's going to kill everyone who gets in his way. He's going to destroy his enemies. Then we're introduced to a king, David, on the run, crying out for help. We get all these words in this text about oppressors and enemies and wicked and nations and evildoers and foes. And David doesn't feel exalted. He doesn't feel majestic. It doesn't feel like the king that we are being promised. He's powerless in these Psalms. And then we abruptly end up at Psalm 8 where it's all about the majesty of God and there's babies who are gonna be the stronghold. There's gonna be this lifted up human that has very Adam-like language to him. And then we're followed by another collection of Psalms with David and even more, the afflicted crowd who are described as righteous, upright, poor, oppressed, innocent, crushed, needy, afflicted ones, the helpless, orphans, infants, and babies. Helpless to change the circumstances. Helpless to actually help themselves. They're crying out to God to deliver them. And they lack all power. And then in Psalm 8, right the smack dab in the middle, God names the foes, the enemies, the Avengers, all the language that has been being used up to this point for five chapters. And then these babies. And what do babies do? When babies make noises, what is the main noise that they do? They cry, right? That's just what babies do. I mean, they, they, they make little noises too. Coo's and stuff like that. But the thing you remember is the cry. They cry. And they're, they're helpless. That's why they do it. They don't have a way to express it. They, something's bothering them and they cry. That's what, that's what happens. And I think this is the, in the image, almost like a riddle that the psalmist picks up on. This is there. And the helpless picture of the cry of a baby that God actually meets the afflicted one. Who have no power to save themselves, who have no power to help themselves, but other than to call out. And he promises to deliver and to become a refuge. And I think it keeps getting unpacked as you go. Because there's more. They get to rule themselves. Because then the psalmist goes, "But well, let's look at creation. And he says, let's look. When I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, you set all these things in place. They're, they're majestic things. They're, they're the heavens. They're wonderful. Uh, you, uh, throughout the rest of the Psalms, we're like, look to the heavens to, to see just how splendid and wonderful uh, is God. And, and, and then we look at the humans. <laughs> and what is man? What is man that you are even mindful of? and the son of man that you would take care of. Once again, going back to Genesis 1, it's so fascinating because you have God create all these majestic things in Scripture. The heavens and the earth and the seas and all these amazing things. And then when he gets to God, how does God actually make man by chapter 2? Like physically, what does he do? He gets dirt out of the ground and he makes man. Everything else he makes just speaking and it just happens. And then we zoom in on humanity and it's like, God took some dirt and he formed you. It's, it's meant to be this unique thing. Yet we've, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. So God, you didn't make him like These majestic creatures, these angels that we have seen the skies open up like Isaiah. And and, and you haven't made him like the gods in the heavens. Yet, you crowned him with glory and honor. These dirt people, puny and powerless dirt people compared to the cosmic Elohim, the cosmic gods, the cosmic heavenly hosts. And yet, God, you elevate the dirt creature to do the task over all of creation. You've given him dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under your feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. So this is certainly Genesis 1 imagery continuing. Dominion and authority has been given over to, of all of creation, to this created being man, humanity. God, why are you mindful of that? The majesty and splendor in verse 1, the the majesty and splendor of God, the king of the universe, introduced at the beginning of the poem. In this very act of creation, he gives his kingly, regal rule and authority to the dirt creatures of all the things he made. It doesn't say he gives authority to the moon that he puts in the sky. It doesn't give authority to the heavenly Elohim beings. He gives authority to man. And why would God even be mindful of him? We aren't as high as them. We aren't as high as other created things. And the psalmist goes out of his way to say that. And the psalmist is using the creation story to develop the scene further, that although God is king, he chooses the lowly things to showcase his very power. Just as he does through the cry of babies, he can show his authority and power in the very humans made from the dirt. And that's the story of Scripture. It's the God who consistently chooses the secondborn instead of the firstborn. The God who chooses the shepherd boy who's standing out in the field, who shows no military promise at all, and goes, that is my God. It's the God who uses Israelite midwives to outwit the king of Pharaoh. The God who uses musicians to tear down walls instead of an army. The God who saves his people through the schemings of Esther and her cousin in the face of the king's top advisor. He's constantly using the powerless and the lowly to defeat the powers of this world. A God who is born to a girl of no status and an unremarkable city, raised in a town of no influence, would suffer and die as a criminal on the cross, and that, that act would pay for the sins of the world and be the coronation ceremony of the God of the universe. It is in weakness, helplessness, desperation that God's power and refuge are most clearly seen. And I think that's the trick of the psalmist here. Blessed are those who take refuge in him, as Psalm 2 says. And you want to live a blessed life? You want to take refuge in the Lord? Well, it is in weakness. It is in the mouth of babbling babies that ultimately God finds or or will provide refuge. It's what God has always done. It's God's MO. And if you don't think so, if you don't think this continues, this is the whole of the New Testament. There's so much in here about this. What does Matthew do? He opens with this crowd of people, like, and includes the genealogy of the people who ultimately had no power and no influence, and includes them in the story. He says, blessed are who? The poor in spirit, meek, persecuted, all the people that no one would expect, the outsiders. He's the one who took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Matthew goes out of his way to include this sort of language. Or Mark. Mark constantly uh, sort of has the unexpected nobodies in the story show tremendous faith in, in, in the, in the, um, against the disciples who are constantly fumbling in, the, in that gospel. He chooses uh, uh, the, the, and teaches about choosing to be last teaches about redemptive suffering, the book of Luke. It's full of stories of outcasts or women or foreigners, people who constantly have no power in the story. It's shepherds and women who are the centerpieces of the Christmas stories. There's parables over and over again about the upside down nature of how God's kingdom works in light of how the world works and expects. Or John, Who highlights even uh, the other John, John the Baptist, and says uh, of him that that his mantra was that he must decrease so that God must increase. The engagement of a Samaritan woman who has no power or status, the commissioning of Peter on the heels of Peter's weakest and and most brutal moments in his storyline. God goes, now go feed my sheep. Peter, you are so broken. I think I can use that. In Acts, the book certainly reminds us that it's not the power of the people of the church, but the spirit in the church. It's even like characters are constantly surprised that God shows up because they don't expect it, because they know they're weak. And the only hope is that God shows up. And every New Testament letter continues to drive home this theme other than maybe 2nd and 3rd John who talk about community needs. So, so you can imply it, but every New Testament letter is constantly, constantly hitting on this idea. Paul will quote Psalm 8 in 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 1, and in those very passages, reflect once again on the humanness of God. He he will go, hey, I know this all doesn't make sense, that the God of the universe is the one who had to die on a cross as a human, which particularly into a Greek world would have been so foreign, because this is the profane and God's in the sacred and humans are the profane part of the world. But he he uses this text to talk about this crucified Messiah, this weakness, this picture of weakness that's just full of, it's like foolish to the world, that he was raised from the dead and now actually has power over all things on earth and cosmic. There's even a slight hint in Psalm 8 about this because the human Adam is is told, hey, um, you're going to have power over all the things created by God's hands. And then it goes on to list all the animals and stuff like that. But previously in this text, it said all the things created by God's hand, which includes all the heavenly beings earlier in the text. And I think Paul goes, yes, Psalmate makes sense to me now. Like I thought I kind of knew, but now I know. And it's good news to this world. It accomplishes that in that weakness is ultimate victory. And just like David is the one given refuge in his weakness in the story, that the invitation is that others would find refuge by crying out as well, right? We have the David part. God showing, look, I show up in people's weakness. And end the story of everybody else's weakness, Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, look, and Jesus had victory through his death, got up out of the grave. He's the firstfruits of that. Ultimately, that's the picture of weakness. Let's quote Psalm 8. Now we get to participate in the same thing. It's good news. God chooses the weak, poor, and afflicted. So will we embrace this? That's the harder question. Um, I've, I've always loved um, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, there's, there's just so much of the language there. But if you've ever read, like, I, I doubt you've heard a sermon series on 2 Corinthians. Um, maybe you have. But the whole book is about suffering and weakness. And so particularly here in America, it's just not themes we love to preach on. Uh, churches just don't cover it a lot. But we, we get a few verses that become like the coffee cup, put them everywhere kind of verses. Um, and Second Corinthians 11 into 12 is just one of those sections. But there's a lot of nuance in the Greek of how we translate. And so um, I'm, I'm going to use Richard Lenski's translation, who's just a linguist person who, who does a good job with this. Starting at verse 11, or starting at the end of 11 into 12. I'll jump around a little bit. If it is necessary to continue boasting, I will boast of things of those things which show my weakness. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, or conceited, I think this is the ESV, a thorn in my flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to knock me out, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I have appealed to the Lord concerning this, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for your power is brought to its end in weakness. Which is a very different way to hear that verse. All the more gladly then will I boast in my weaknesses than the, that the power of Christ, not mine, may tabernacle amongst me. It's a word sometimes that's come to rest or, or the ESV will use, but it's actually the word that's constantly used in the New Testament around God tabernacling, God finding a dwelling place upon me. Therefore, I take delight in weaknesses, in insults, in necessities, in persecutions, in calamities for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong." the question is, do we actually operate that way? Or do we live in a world of self-sufficiency, self-powered, self-directed, self-managed, self-comforted, in a world of self-self-self? And we will gladly say, yes, I mean, I have my quiet time in the morning, I trust in God and these things, and yet live a life that is full of busy, it's full of seeking all sorts of comforts besides God, Look, I'm for counseling, but it should start with going, God, I need help, <laughs> and the follow-up to that might be, and part of that will be seeking counseling from others and seeking care. But do we go there first? God, my finances are a wreck. Versus, I need a financial advisor as my first step. God, I am powerless. I am powerless, right? I am feeble. I am humble. I don't know. And the only strength I possibly have is yours. And is that our posture? Because God says that's the heart posture he's looking for. I mean, he says God, God opposes the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. Not the humble braggers, but the people who are truly sitting there, with contrite hearts going, God, I don't, I don't have anything apart from you like, I, I'm like a babbling baby. I, I, I need you. Marva Don, who, um, she was a pastor and um, wrote a, a series of books, but she had a lot of physical infirmities throughout her life. She says, some days I'm thoroughly exhausted with all the strain of trying to manage with arthritic hands, a crippled leg, a blind eye, a deaf ear, kidneys functioning around 70% dead uh, uh, intestinal and stomach nerves, resulting in no uh, peristalsis, pain left over from cancer and jaw surgeries, the imminent uh, possibility of losing vision in my remaining eye, and now the possibility that the bone dropping from the fusion of the foot will continue generating sores that will eventually necessitate amputation. And this is in the whole list. Does God really need me to be this weak? And she says, yes. I believe that, though I don't understand it that part of our human weakness is to recognize that the workings of God are hidden, mysterious, beyond our human comprehension. And in the midst of unknowing, however, God comes afresh with his new tabernacle, new dwelling. And it's the invitation of the kingdom that's upside down, ever challenging, beautiful kingdom, where we walk in and go, I am the biggest of sinners in the room. Like if people knew my life, oh, but Christ is out of me on the cross. I don't need to run and hide. I don't need to live in shame. And I can own my weakness. I can own my struggles. God has more, uh, I won't call that yet. We are the weakest people. We are the people who must decrease, who boast in nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And it is his power that will give us endurance. I don't want you to hear that your power lifts; You're just not self-powered. And when we try to be, we fight against the very work of God. Marvodon will go on to say, even as Christ accomplished atonement for us by suffering and death, so the Lord accomplishes witness to the world through our weakness. In fact, God has more need of our weakness than our strength. Just as powers overstep their bounds and become God's, so our power becomes a rival to God. And as the Psalms and Isaiah teach us, God's way is not to take us out of tribulations, but to comfort us in the midst of them and to exchange our strength in the face of them. And by our union with Christ and the power of the Spirit, we display God's glory. So, this is a big concept. And I'm not even done, like, it was, it was a wonderful gift of God to give me a book this week that's so paralleled what I was going to be teaching on. And I'm not even done with it, so maybe I'll add more later. But I want us to, to, to take time, especially in these psalms, to reflect. Because they are poetic, they are meant to be reflective, we are meant to meditate, to kind of chew on these ideas. And so here, here's what I want to invite us to do for the next few minutes to kind of wrap up. I want us to spend time reflecting, praying, and I want to invite you, there's something to posture that that matters. Now, if you don't want to do this, that's fine, but I want to invite you into it. Because at some point, they're sort of like, what is the posture of people who are just crying out to God? And I would imagine they're sitting here just like this, like, God, I have nothing. I have nothing to bring you, and I'm hopeless. I I don't even know what to do or where to turn. I'm weak, and I'm frail. And so I want to invite us to pray, open-handed, hands in front of you, knowing that whatever you have is a gift from God anyways, that we bring nothing to a table, that we come to Jesus, even as Jesus teaches, like children that our faith would be almost childlike, knowing I I, I don't don't even know what to bring you, God, (laughs) because anything I have is yours. And that we would be weak in front of the God of the universe, knowing that it is in his weakness, in our weakness, that he is strong. So I'm going to read through a few prayers. I invite us to close our eyes, to have our hands open in front of us, and to receive these words. So a prayer from the week of Epiphany. Oh God, the strength of all those who put their trust in you, mercifully accept our prayers and because in our weakness we can do nothing good without you give us this help give us the help of your grace that in keeping your commandments we may please you both in will and deed through jesus christ our lord who lives and reigns father of mercy by your son's death Resurrection, demolish our pretensions of strength. And on the ruins build a temple worthy of your name. So that all the world may know the glory of your transforming power. Shown in Jesus Christ. I make myself nothing with thee. I make thee the entire sacrifice of my pride, of the vanity which has possessed me up to the present. Help my weak beginning. Keep from me the occasions of my falling. Turn my eyes that I see not. Vanity, but that I see only Thee, and I see myself before Thee. It will be then that I shall know that I who what I am and who You are. Jesus, born in a stable, fled to Egypt. Thirty years of His life in a shop as a craftsman suffering hunger, thirst, weariness. He's poor, scorned, and abject. He teaches heaven, no one listens. All the great and the wise pursue him, take him, and make him suffer frightful torments, and they treat him like a slave, make him die between two thieves after having preferred a thief to him. That was the life that Jesus chose. And God, we have, we have a horror at the slightest humiliation. God, let us compare our life to that of your son. Let us remember that he is the master and we are the slaves and servants. Can we with justice feel contempt for others and dwell in our faults when we are full of them ourselves? Let us commence to walk on the road which Jesus Christ has marked for us, since it is the only one which can lead to him. Lord, high and holy and meek and lowly, you've brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see you in the heights in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all, and that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place also of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. So let me find thy light in the darkness, thy life in my death, the joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. God, out of the mouth of babes, we find refuge. God, out of lowly man that we wouldn't even expect you to be mindful of, you crown Jesus and you crown us over all your creation. God, we love you. your kingdom is so upside down it invites everyone it's not status it's not power, it's not position it's not money it's not control it's not all those that we have under our feet it is in being low and weak dwell and showcase your power the most. So God, tune our heart for that. Pray all this in your name.